Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As usual, before we start, this is your reminder that you can pick up a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist magazine. All you have to do is go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers. It's been great to see so many of you signing up with this code so far already. Yeah, join the throng, the great global family of New Scientist subscribers. You get access to loads of premium content, videos, features, interviews and an amazing archive of work going back for years. POD20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your discount and your membership of the New Scientist Global Family. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in science and more surprises than a Nobel Prize Selection Committee. I'm (laughs) Kat Delange and I'm New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. This week we're joined by New Scientist Culture Editor Tim Ravel. Hi Tim. Hello. Coming up on the show. These are carved out of wood, is it? These are carved out of mammoth ivory. Mammoth ivory? Yes, yes. Wow. That's me in the closest thing I can get to an Inuit village in London. We've also got a CRISPR gene-edited cow, and we've got some quite startling new findings about symptom clusters for COVID-19. There was no room on the show this week for a social species of cockroach. That's fine by me. (laughs) Or for the revelation that in Finland, some babies are being fed their mother's poo in an effort to boost their gut bacteria. Something definitely not to try at home. No. Uh, You'll have to read about both of those stories in the mag this week. But first, there's been some big Nobel Prize news this week. Yeah, it's really exciting. So normally, Nobel Prize season is a bit nightmarish for science journalists because, well, we have to suddenly get up to speed with something really obscure. I remember that feeling well from the year it was awarded to, just checking my notes, theoretical discoveries of topological phase transitions and topological phases of matter. (laughs) Oh, that classic one. Yeah, that classic one, which was actually one of my first assignments at New Scientist. Um, But this year, it's been a lot more accessible. So should we start with the physics prize? Yeah, yeah, the physics one. Um, So as you'll have heard, the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to a woman for only the fourth time in 117 years. Oh, that is great news, but it's also so depressing. Yeah, the uh, the Nobel Committee has got a lot of ground to make up on this and lots of questions to answer about basically why women have been neglected over the years. And we should give a special shout out to Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who discovered pulsars, but didn't get the Nobel Prize for it when that was awarded in 1974. OK, so is the news that it was awarded to a woman or assuming there's actually some science to be discussed here? Yeah, Tim, tell us about it. So this year's one is all about black holes, which obviously we love. So half of the prize went to Roger Penrose for his theoretical work on how stars collapse to form black holes. And the other half went to Reinhard Gensel and Andrea Ghez, who showed that the dense object at the centre of our galaxy is a supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A star. Right, Tim, you've got a PhD in maths. So we thought we'd take the opportunity then to uh, ask you some questions about black holes. 
Uh, so, wonderful. Yeah. Luckily, I've done some revision. <laughs> Good. All right. Let's see how you go. What is the difference between a regular black hole and a, a supermassive black hole? Or is it, you know, that the supermassive hole has just literally eaten up loads of stars? Uh, well, sort of. So the main difference is size, but probably in also in the way that they form. So your bog standard black hole, which is called a stellar black hole, forms when a massive star comes to the end of its life and implodes. And the mass of these can be up to 20 times greater than the sun, fitting into a space about 10 miles across. Now, if you compare this to a supermassive black hole, these have a mass of over a million times our sun and fit into a space about the size of our solar system. Now, supermassive black holes, yeah, so they're they're really, really big, and they tend to sit at the centre of nearly every galaxy. Um, But we're not really sure how they form. So one idea is that they are um, stellar black holes that have consumed huge amounts of stuff over millions of years, like a supermassive Pac-Man. And the other idea is that they were once stars that were far larger than any that we know of today, um, which then collapsed to become supermassive black holes. And, And how big can they get? I mean, will they just keep growing? So no, they shouldn't. Um, they won't absorb everything around them as there's even limits to the gravitational pull of a supermassive black hole. Um, and in terms of how big they can get, well, there's actually this sort of fun subcategory of really supermassive black holes called ultra-massive black holes um, that can have a mass up to about 40 billion times our sun. So that's tens of thousand times bigger than a usual supermassive black hole, though we've only actually seen a few of these. Okay, so here's another one for you. Is there a wormhole inside a black hole? Well, yeah, if there's a wormhole and you travelled through it, would you go to a parallel world where only four men have ever won Nobel Prize? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're still looking for that particular wormhole. In terms of if there's a wormhole inside a black hole, there's this idea that for every black hole, there's a white hole which is something we've written about. And a white hole is sort of the opposite of a black hole. So where a black hole grab holds of, holds of stuff, a white hole works in reverse, spewing out stuff whenever it can. And one idea is that each black hole is connected to a white hole through a wormhole. But obviously we've not seen a white hole before. And so this is all just uh, objects that have been made up and seem to make sense mathematically. I love that idea though. Okay. I think it makes so much sense. Um, but moving on, yeah, well, yeah, moving on, let's not forget the Nobel Prize in chemistry. So the chemistry prize has gone to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for gene editing. I did see some chemists were tweeting their frustration that gene editing isn't really chemistry. <laughs> yeah, well, tough. You know, uh, I'm a biologist. At least they have a prize. Biology doesn't even have a Nobel Prize. So yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, so we, we did interview Emmanuel Charpentier um, a while ago in the magazine and I thought she said something really interesting which was that um because she's been having a, a ongoing legal battle um about the patenting of the CRISPR technology and she said something which, which struck me which was that the she said the technology belongs to the bacteria which I thought was nice. <laughs> yeah we did an interview with Jennifer Doudna also a couple of years ago and uh, she was raised in Hawaii and uh, I thought what was interesting was um, after CRISPR really started taking off in the world in about 2015. She said she began to have dreams of tsunamis. And uh, yeah, she was raised in Hawaii. So, you know, people are aware of of tsunamis from a young age. So it was like a sort of stress dream or something. Yeah, it was. Like she's, you know, she was like, what have I released into the world? And is it going to overwhelm us? You know, and people are talking about modifying human embryos with CRISPR, as we've talked about on the podcast a lot. Um, you know, and, and she says she has a problem with that. But I guess the 
the big thing is that a lot of people or some people won't have a problem with it and they will do it. They will modify humans. And that's why CRISPR is one of the biggest breakthroughs in genetics in decades. Genetics or do you mean chemistry? Uh, yeah, chemistry, <laughs> chemistry, chemistry Nobel. Anyway, definitely will change the world. Yeah. And in fact, our next segment is all about CRISPR. Moving seamlessly on, that's our sci-fi alert. This is when we've got something in the mag that's already been in science fiction. Uh... <laughs> Rowan, why is there a cow in the studio? Well, that's because this is the news of a gene-edited cow that has been made with grey patches instead of black, meaning it will absorb less heat. And the aim is to reduce heat stress in the animals due to global warming. What the hell? Yeah, <sighs> yeah it is bitterly ironic actually this story because basically we've had to gene edit cows to make them better able to cope with conditions that have been brought on in part by our massive over farming of cows uh, it would be funny if it wasn't true wouldn't it? yeah um cattle ranching is one of the worst contributors to greenhouse gases and and the extinction crisis one ecologist told me agriculture is the single biggest threat to biodiversity and extinction and livestock farming generates 14.5% of total greenhouse gas emissions, which is about the same as trains, cars, ships and planes put together. Uh, it's terrible, I guess, but yeah. that's where we are. And so gene editing, is that going to save us and our bovine friends? Well, uh, so this is the thing. Cattle with uh, black or mostly black coats, like uh, Holston Frisian dairy cows, they're thought to suffer much more heat stress, which cows are getting more of due to global warming. If they had lighter coats, like some of Highland beef cattle, they would suffer less of this heat stress. But you you can't just breed cattle with dairy cows, right? Because you get a hybrid that is perhaps no good for milk and no good for meat, right? You? Yeah, you would. So so this is what's good about CRISPR. You can use CRISPR just to change one gene that's involved in pigmentation, and they've done that and made Frisian cows with uh, grey patches instead of this black and white, the classic black and white. So is there other things that uh, we could do with this? Yeah, another group is already using gene editing to make cows with shorter hair, so they also get less heat stressed. But this is a great example of how CRISPR has just gone absolutely everywhere. What's the sci-fi link? <laughs> well, uh, a cow that's been artificially created uh, to deal with a problem caused entirely by its own existence, uh, it has to be uh, from... Uh, Douglas Adams, uh, the restaurant at the end of the universe. And in that, there's an Omeglian major cow, uh, which has been bred so that it wants to be eaten so that people don't feel guilty killing it. Time out. Have you ever thought about making your own podcast? It's never been easier to get yourself set up, especially if you choose Budsprout to host your show. Yeah, we've been using Buzzsprout from the very start. Each week, it'll automatically distribute your episodes to all of the major platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It also has loads of tools to help you promote your show and you get a customizable website, you get to track your download numbers and they even help you find a sponsor. If you fancy giving podcasting a go, we have a special offer code in the show notes that takes you to their website. Signing up to a paid plan by following the link below lets Buzzsprout know we sent you it gets you a $20 Amazon gift card and helps support our show. Yes, so just go to the link in the show notes to find out more. 
Now, last month, satellite data from NASA showed that the coverage of sea ice in the Arctic had reached the second lowest extent since record keeping began in the 1970s. It's one of the clearest signs. Well, along with heat waves, droughts and wildfires across the Arctic and west coast of America, it's a clear sign of worsening global warming. We obviously talk all the time about climate change and renewable energy and wildfires and all this stuff. But today we wanted to hear a bit more about how indigenous people in the Arctic are adapting to the challenges of climate change and also economic challenges. So we sent Rowan to the Arctic. Yeah, I wish. I wish. <laughs> so we sent Rowan to the British Museum, where they're putting on an <laughs> exhibition called Arctic Culture and Climate. Here's his report. So I've just arrived at the British Museum's Arctic Culture and Climate exhibition, and straight away I feel like I'm in the Arctic, although it's not that cold. And the first thing that strikes me is this incredible sort of onesie made of seal skin and Amber Lincoln the curator here is going to tell me all about it yeah we've been calling this um, the oldest waterproof suit in the world wow. um, but it is uh, so basically it is uh, an entire suit uh, w- including boots and mitts and um, a hood sewn with waterproof stitches out of seal skin and so there's a hole in the center with a drawstring and uh, the person would enter the suit uh, through the hole and then pull it tight <sighs> pull the the drawstring around the face and it was completely waterproof and airtight so the hunter uh, would have jumped out of the boat into the icy seas on trying to jump onto a whale and hunted the whale that way so it's quite wow. a spectacular um, hunting equipment and of course the waterproof element of it would have made the hunter the wearer buoyant and warm right because it the air would have been inside so it looks like a massive onesie made of leather yes um which would be used for hunting a whale leaping on the back of a whale yes yeah incredible incredible right and just as we go past this, what, what's that? That looks incredibly yes. delicate. Yeah, what, it does like a, look incredibly yeah, delicate. D- describe that for us. So this is um, a raincoat, and um, it's, it's made out of seal gut. So um, the, the intestines, you know, is a, a long loop, and then they're, they're split wow. and then sewn together with, again, these waterproof stitches. You know, these, these are typical. I mean, they look incredibly delicate, and, of course, you know, um, if they're not cared for properly, they are delicate. But but when they're properly cared for, you know, they're they're quite um, rigorous. I thought it was paper. It almost uh, looks know. like paper. Yeah, yeah. it's al- it's translucent. They're beautiful. They pick up light. But in fact, they also um, repel water really well. I guess one of the things that you know we're trying to sort of explain is how much. People have, you know, adapted and innovated with the cold. You know, when you understand the extent to which cold weather patterns are woven into the lives of indigenous Arctic people, you get the sense of the impact of something like global climate change. So here, um, Delano Barr from Shishmaraf is talking, explaining the local challenges of a warming arctic and essentially he's saying we have to adjust to the weather um that these are these are different weather patterns they're different seasonal patterns and 
You can't rely on hunting in the same way that they did in the past. They have to adjust. So tell us about Shishmarath, because you've been there, and it's at the very forefront of what we're going to see a lot more of, which is climate-caused evacuation, effectively. Um, So because of melting permafrost and erosion of the coastline, the whole village is is eroding and they're having to move it from its ancestral site, right? Yeah, that's right. So Shishmaraf, Alaska, like a number of Arctic communities, rests very close to the coastline. And this is for good reason. Um, you know, Shishmaraf people have hunted bearded seal for, for centuries and have um, fished and relied on the, the marine mammals um, of the region. And it's kind of the perfect place to do that if you are a marine mammal hunter. Um, not only do you have easy access to the coastline, but the wind from right along the coast dries your food. It, it preserves it from uh, so that you can have it for the rest of the winter. But what's happening in Shishraf is sea ice is no longer freezing up as early as it used to freeze up. So the sea ice used to protect this barrier island from large storms. Now that the sea ice is gone, the large storms come in and um, take out you know, several meters of um, the island each year. Um, they've lost houses, they've had to move houses, but the community is incredibly uh, resilient and incredibly organized. And, um, you know, for the last 20 years, uh, they have been working to address this problem, to raise awareness about um, what's happening to their communities and other Arctic communities as a result of global climate change. These are carved out of wood, is it? These are carved out of mammoth ivory. Mammoth ivory? Yes, yes. Wow. And again, you know, this is a tradition that goes back, you know, 30,000 years, essentially, you know. Yeah. Mammoth ivory, it doesn't, it doesn't come, come easy. much. No, <laughs> so um, there's, there is quite a bit of mammoth ivory. Interestingly enough, I mean, with climate change and the melting of the permafrost and the eroding of They're different... Popping um, out more the, often. Yes, yeah. and so there is kind of a, a difficult thing going on for official, you know, artists who, who have historically used this material and this new trade in um, mammoth, it's an illegal trade in mammoth ivory. So there is this interesting thing, less walrus ivory, but now more <laughs> mammoth ivory as, as the permafrost erodes. Yeah. So we saw around the corner that sort of anorak that I thought looked like paper and it was seal gut. But this is paper. These are made of paper, right? That's right. So um, this is um, a tigit silipat. It's uh, made by uh, an arts collective, Embassy of the Imagination, with Inuit kids in Nunavut who did workshops, um, did educational workshops on the land. They learned to sew. They made themselves their own parka as a process of learning how to make this art. What is the one message you would like people to take with them after seeing this exhibition or for people who can't make it there and who are learning about it learning about arctic people what's the the thing you want them to go away and think about so the arctic is changing before our very eyes and um and is warming at a rate unlike anywhere else on the earth 
Um, but I think um, Arctic people have dealt with rapid change and they do have um, information to, to convey to us. Um, you know, they have dealt with social and environmental change over the last 30,000 years through cultural adaptation, material innovation, and, and social collaboration. And I think although climate change is absolutely a serious um, condition that um, we, we should all be concerned about and, and act locally on, on how to resolve it, but I don't think it should be a paralyzing position. We can, we can draw from other people. We can look to how Arctic people have responded to rapidly changing climate. Amber, thanks very much for showing us around. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, I can't make up my mind after that. If I'm more hopeful now, I know a little more about the history and resilience of indigenous Arctic people, or if I'm even more concerned about climate change in the Arctic and the effect on these circumpolar people. So, ah. Anyway, thanks to uh, again to the curator, Amber Lincoln. It's a wonderful exhibition. The Arctic Culture and Climate Exhibition opens at the British Museum in London on October the 22nd. But if you're not going to be able to make it there, do check out the link in the notes to our show. Now it's time for us to exploit the presence of our culture editor and check in with what cultural pleasures we've been enjoying over the last week. Rowan, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'm reading The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. He's a sci-fi author, but the thing about his stuff is that it's so plausible, it feels like you're reading a history written by someone in the future rather than a work of fiction. His books are usually set, you know, two or three hundred years in the future, but this one uh, is set in 2025, you know, and that's, it's really affecting me much more. You know, this is just around Mm. the corner. It's about climate change uh, and it's about how that's going to start to affect us more and more. What does 2025 look like? Uh, It doesn't look great, actually. Uh, So the Ministry of the Future is a division of the United Nations that deals with and advocates for people and animals of the near future, and it tries to protect their interests. So no spoilers at all, um, but the book starts with a really shocking event. And I often used to wonder, would there be an incident that would finally cause the world to wake up and act decisively on climate change? And you know, so far, no, you know, we we have hurricanes and wildfires and floods and ice melting. And, you know, obviously, we, we have to say that no single event can be definitively tied to climate change. So, you know, there isn't these single events. But Kim Stanley Robinson has imagined something and it and it really does hit home hard. Sounds Tim, great. what about you? So I've recently watched um, My Octopus Teacher on Netflix, mm. uh, which we also reviewed in the magazine. Have you seen this? I've been meaning to watch it, actually. Yeah, so the brief synopsis is it follows Craig Foster, who's a wildlife photographer, who just becomes obsessed with this uh, particular female octopus in the beautiful kelp forests at the tip of South Africa. And he films it for hours every single day over the course of a year. Um, And you've actually probably seen the most famous bit of footage that he took, which appeared in Blue Planet 2, which is where this octopus gathers dozens and dozens of shells to camouflage itself. Mm. But in in the documentary, you really get to know the octopus over over its life, really, because they only live such a short period of time. A year is a very large portion of its life. I was going to say, yeah, it must have a sad ending, (laughs) this. Yeah, well, the, the the octopus is not, uh, you know, doesn't have any sides to the camera afterwards, so it's it hasn't it hasn't made it through. Mm-hmm. But 
it is it's like it's, it's really beautifully shot and you get these amazing images i would say probably the main thing that maybe for some people there won't be enough science and then the other thing is there's a lot about um craig foster whereas at times you're just like show me the octopus but it is it's really good well, I've been um, really nerding out, actually. I'm listening to an audio book about the brain. So it's called How to Build a Healthy Brain by Kimberly Wilson. And it's just one of those things that I think we talk about all the time, especially in the magazine. We, we talk about how um, things we can do to protect our brain and, and live a healthier, longer life. But when you start looking at it, it's actually amazing how the things that you can do in your daily life can have an absolutely massive impact on your brain and I'm just really getting so into it and I started reading around it and you know the research shows that doing exercise can be as effective for some mental health conditions as the regular treatments treatments that we have and just the benefits of stuff like exercise and and, and your diet and your brain um I found it quite a positive thing in these times have you changed anything you do after reading the book I mean, I, I sort of ex, I don't try and be quite healthy anyway, but it it has been an extra motivator for me to know that okay, like I just need to go on this run, and I'm gonna not only get this like definite boost afterwards, and my mood will will be better, but um, it could protect my brain against dementia. Um, it will help with like anxiety and stress and depression, all that stuff. It's just it's motivating me to sort of maintain stuff, especially as the the nights are drawing in and things are getting a bit harder. And also one of the things that it's got me thinking about is how when you do exercise, it's so obvious, but studies show that if you keep, um, if you do an exercise that that you enjoy, that lifts your mood while you're doing it, then you are going to stick to it longer. Um, so I'm thinking maybe I should do different kinds of exercise. Maybe I should do more like team sports or fun dance classes and stuff rather than kind of boring things. And Kimberly Wilson is actually doing a live online event for us all about this on the 15th of October. Now, uh, inevitably moving on to COVID-19, we're learning a lot more about the disease and weirdly, it's starting to look like people fall into one of several symptom clusters that almost look like different diseases. Uh, Kat, what's going on here? Yeah, so this is a story that uh, was written by our reporter Jessica Hamzaloo this week. And it's really about the fact that when the outbreak first started, um, health authorities were very focused on symptoms of cough, fever, difficulty breathing and then as uh COVID-19 spread and we saw a a lot more cases that's really changed and so um it's gone from being something that looks a lot like many other respiratory infections to something quite different and it really massively varies between people um so obviously we know that older people get more severe symptoms but many younger people have died too and we're starting to see that children get it in a very different way and so this um, thing that you mentioned of, this, of the symptom clusters, that comes out of the COVID symptom um, study app. And they found that there are these six kind of pretty distinct um, sets of symptoms that you might get. And that could predict how ill you get later on. And so are we any closer to knowing why it varies so much in different people? We are, people are looking into it. It's really complicated. Um, so we know that the individual response might be to do with the immune system. And for, for instance, older people having weakened immune systems or having been exposed to different viruses. But there are other things that we're looking at now. So different variants of the virus could potentially trigger different immune responses 
or um, it might be to do with the amount of the virus that someone's exposed to or even the route of infection. So whether it you get it through your eyes or your nose or your mouth. Wow. Um, and so then there are these six symptom clusters that have been identified. So a few of them are quite mild and they are will be kind of like flu-like. Um, and then there are more severe clusters and people who tend to um, have these, they develop fatigue, chest pain, confusion. And in the sixth cluster, they have more symptoms and they tend to become very ill. And, and when you get it, is there a way of telling which cluster you might be in? You know, it might you be able to find out if you're going to get really ill before that happens? Yeah, so there are there are sort of lists of symptoms for, in each cluster and you can read that in the mag. But generally speaking, if a person gets symptoms that affect their whole body and not just the nose and throat, but also things like muscles, chest, um, tummy problems, their brain, then that's going to be much more of a problem and they're more likely to need hospital treatment. And turning to the Great Barrington Declaration, so this is a document signed by some scientists uh, and also some made-up people, like there's a Dr Mickey Mouse that's uh, apparently signed it. Um, (laughs) This declaration is basically urging governments to drop COVID restrictions and get everyone back out there and wait for herd immunity to take over. Uh, So what do we think about this, Kat? I mean, we we have written about this before, and I think that... My, you know, my main issue with it is that it's not very scientific what they're suggesting and they haven't gone into any details of how they're going to do this. It doesn't really make sense. So, um, you know, shielding vulnerable people. Well, who are those vulnerable people? Because people who we know a lot of young people are reporting long tail COVID symptoms where they're ill, you know, have debilitating illness for a long time. Are they vulnerable people? Because that's not what you would think of as vulnerable. Um, and even if you are shielding, say, older people, we don't have a system in place to protect those people. They're still interacting with the rest of society in some way or another. And then much bigger issues as well, like herd immunity. We don't even know whether that's achievable. Um, We don't know that immunity lasts. We don't know how long it lasts for. And the idea that you could just let the virus run freely through large swathes of the population and not expect a lot of people to die and get very ill from that I think is is very naive um so yeah, there's all sorts dangerous. of things that are it's wrong really with it. dangerous, yeah, yeah very dangerous um and so there's a lot of discussion around uh, around this and it's been billed as a sort of great rift uh, within science but I don't think that there are any major health bodies that actually support this idea um so I don't think it is really a, a real divide between science I think that's just the way that it's been portrayed I just wanted to flag one more thing this week before we wrap up the show. Um, Do check out an amazing story in this week's magazine by science writer Caroline Williams. And it's all about an epidemic that you might not have heard of, of human unsteadiness. Yeah, I read this and it's amazing. We're getting less steady on our feet and not just in old age. Falling is the second biggest cause of accidental death in the world. So it's a massive deal. Uh, So find out what's going on in the brain and how we can address the problem. Uh, It's the cover story in this week's magazine. Thanks for joining us, Tim, and thank you all for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. Do get in touch. We're going to start a section on the show where we directly answer your questions about science. So do send them in. We're on Twitter at NewScientistPod, and you can email us at podcasts at NewScientist.com. And in the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Till next time. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.
This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.